research? How long does it take you to write a book and find out all this research you provide? Because you've got a lot of classical history, and, uh, and you're, it's amazing all the examples you use in your book. It's easy for me to read the stories because there's so many different examples and different stories, and I think that's cool because I, I'm like a multitasker, and I like to read different examples and ideas and whatnot. Well, it takes um, to write a book uh, two or three years, depending on, you know, how dense it is. So the 48 laws took a little over two years, and the 50th law that I did with 50 Cent, that took maybe a little over two years. But the, the war book, which was a lot harder, took about three years, and my new book, Mastery, also took about three years. So I, I'd say anywhere from two to three years. It's a lot of work. Um, with you, you were a late bloomer, as you put it, right? You didn't really start yeah. making writing until mid thirties. Um, what did you do during the hard times? Like, I know you did med- meditation to help complete mastery, right? It wasn't it wasn't going to be on time, and you did it last minute. Yeah. How was well, that process? Uh, what's that? How was that process? Well, that you know, uh, that was my last book, and uh, I, I the publisher was very worried that I wasn't going to finish it on time. And so they gave me a ridiculous deadline, basically to write almost half the book in 11 weeks, which just seemed physically impossible because of it was, it was the two hardest, most important chapters in the book, very complex ideas. And I was already exhausted at that point when they gave me the deadline. <clears throat> and so it was kind of like a what I talk about in the war book of a like a death ground strategy. I, at first I said, you know, no way, I, I can't do this. Um, it's impossible, and I just was ready to give up. But then I decided I had no choice, because if I didn't he- meet the deadline, they could cancel or postpone the project, which would really be bad. So I, I just determined I was going to do it. You know, it was like I was going to die trying, and... Um, I discovered in doing that that I had, you know, more energy and, um, you know, I could kind of push past my own limits. And it was kind of exciting because I had to work so hard that uh, ideas were just coming to me all over the place. It just made me focus more and made the thought process so intense that I think in the end it kind of helped the book. Yeah. But at first, I just wanted to to cry and go sit in the corner, and I, and I quickly got past that. Yeah, yeah. You talk. We'll get into that in a little bit about like the fear and the uh, the fiftieth law. Why do you think uh, hip hop artists and people within the culture enjoy your books and uh, study the laws and reread the fiftieth law and mastery? Why does your work appeal to them like so much? Why do you think so within the hip hop culture? Well, it's a good question. I don't know. You know, I've asked a lot of them. Um, you know, I've, I've obviously talked to 50 about it. Um, and the sense that I have, and I talked to people who were in the more management positions, um, and the, the feeling I have is that uh, it, the book came out at sort of the right time, like mm-hmm. the late 90s, and a lot of hip-hop artists were were looking to make a move away from just being musicians to owning their own music, to being kind of entrepreneurs. I think... There were some people who sort of hinted at that earlier on, and Tupac sort of opened up the subject a bit. And um, the, But for a lot of these artists, uh, they had no business background, and the music industry is just really, really Machiavellian and nasty. Uh, 50 would tell me that you know he was, he was a hustler at the age of 10 on the streets of Southside Queens, but None of that prepared him for dealing with the, the incredible sharks in the music business um, who could turn on you in a moment, and, and you didn't, you never knew why. And so they, people like 50 um, found the book really helpful in dealing uh, with this very nasty business uh, because the book is very honest about the power game. Um, you know, there, for, for a lot of African Americans, the they've seen the kind of the dark side of power and how it operates. Um, and so for them, the book was just being true and honest um, and they could really appreciate it. So I think they, there's a whole history in hip hop of, of books on strategy, like the art of war, 
where they kind of like the, you know, an honest, fresh, realistic approach to the game of life. And so I think my book was helpful and was written in a way that was maybe interesting for them, and it came out at the right time. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but Kanye West actually rapped this in an old freestyle when he was, like, on the verge of signing to a record label. He actually, he actually rapped the only book I ever read I could I could have wrote, The 48 Laws of Power. Did you, do you, yeah, see, do you see Kanye using that advice to help uh, better shape a successful career? Like, this is when he just made his first album, I believe. Well, he's very he's very um, sharp business person. Um, he's cultivated a persona that's that's very unique. You know, I have a law in there about court attention at all cost, and and chapters laws about how to create an image that is compelling and creates spectacles and all that. I've never had a personal conversation with him. I met him once <laughs> in in a, the VMA Awards in Vegas with when I was with Fifty. Okay. Uh, he seemed really nice. I know that there that the beef that they had going on at that time, which was I think around oh seven, oh eight. They were competing. What's that? They're competing. Uh, whoever sold them uh, more albums and actually. Yeah, that was totally a manufactured beef. That wasn't real. They were like really good friends, and okay. there was absolutely no hatred or bitterness between them at all. They were just doing that to to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that he, the book early in his career um, helped him a lot. Probably later on, he just he just went back to being Kanye. So I, I wouldn't know personally, though. I've never had a, a good yeah. conversation with him. Didn't Buster Rhymes back out of a movie role that incorporated the 48 Laws? And uh, he was supposed to portray, portray someone using the 48 Laws of Power? Well, I, I know Busta. I've met him. We've, we've, I've had many conversations with him, and he told me, that he came upon the book. He's probably one of the first hip-hop artists that actually came, uh, bought the book right after it came out. And he was trying to begin his acting career. We're talking about 1998. And yeah. actually, it was an acting teacher who told him that he, he should read the book because it had all these great stories that could first help you deal with the business, but also could inspire you from an acting point of view. And yeah. so he um, was one of the, I think, one of the first artists who read the book and then started spreading it uh, to other people. And he contacted me uh, about in 04, 05, because he wanted to do a television version of, uh, of the 48 Laws of Power, and we worked on it a little bit. I don't, I don't know the story about him, uh, one of his first roles. That that he never, he never said. But I, I know for a fact that the book really helped him uh, dealing with Hollywood and early on in his music career. And he's a, he's a pretty impressive person. I, w- I, re- I really like Busta. He's a good guy. He seems like a nice guy. Um, going to master your book, um, you talk about the importance of an apprenticeship and uh, which someone is willing to go under undergo years of humble observation and be around professionals in the industry that they choose. Well, you talk about having to offer something. I believe I have a, me personally, like this is like a prime example. Like I'm giving you like a direct uh, industry and an example. I believe I have a lot to offer, maybe even too much, because I've conducted interviews with people in the hip hop culture, you know, big names like you and like other artists and uh, authors, et cetera, and uh, some of the top urban personalities as well. So when I go on these interviews for internships, I feel like I'm at risk because hip hop is such a competitive industry that these stations will take interns who know nothing about the culture because they don't want to be outshined. Rule number one of the law, law of 40 yeah. hours. Also, um, the top radio personalities already have assistants and whatnot, so it's hard to try and get involved with them. Like, I'm trying to get this one personality I'm trying to get an apprenticeship with. We've been going back and forth sharing emails. But what happens when that person follows your books and your laws and example never commit to anyone? How do you How do you do the apprenticeship in that direct example. I know you, you give a lot of advice to business people and whatnot, but what about within the hip-hop industry? You mean as far as getting an internship, like in your position? Or an, an apprenticeship in my position, because um, say if someone follows all your books and all your and all the laws and stuff, how can anyone make advances if they know all the moves and they know not to be manipulated or be used? And, uh, you know, well, example. Talking, I mean, the new book, um, Mastery, I, I lay out a, a path, a process for you um, that's pretty universal and would apply to anything in the music business or 
rapping or if you want to be an artist. Um, I was actually sort of inspired originally uh, in creating this sort of process that I detail in the book by 50 himself. Um, but it really depends on who you are. So the first chapter in Mastery is about discover your calling, what you were meant to do in life. And in your case, then, you have to sit down and you have to put pen to paper or think it out or record it or somehow of what it is that you think you were meant to do, what it is that you love. Um, are you meant to be have your own radio show, to start your own magazine, to be interviewing artists? Do you want to get into the actual business itself? It depends. Based, based on that, uh, where you, you decide this is what really where I feel the most passionate about, where I feel... I'm, I can, you know, my skills um, and who I am, this is this is the right goal to set. You know, like at the age of 30, I want to be doing this. Once yes. you know that, then, then you got to make some decisions. Like where can you learn the most to get to that particular goal uh, in, in eight, ten years? And, um, you know, interning at a, a small hip-hop um you know, business, um, a magazine or something like Rap Genius. I happen to know the people at Rap Genius. They're, they're pretty great. Um, where you're going to get like an overall intensive education about who's who and how the business works and you'll be able to kind of tighten up your interviewing skills. I mean, it, it, what, what you want to do is you want to have some fun. You want to explore your 20s or a time for kind of adventure and discovering what you like and what you don't like. So given the kind of broad idea that you want to be in hip-hop as sort of a journalist, you choose to, you're going to like go and try four or five different jobs and develop skills and, and expand your contacts. And if you do it, if you play it right, um, in eight years what you'll be doing is you'll be starting your own, your own site uh, yeah. and, and all that. So it just it just depends on what your your goal is what your strengths are and all of that we'd have to have a a nice long conversation before i could really t- give you some details on that yeah that could be safe for another time but for the like just the starters i started a radio show i interviewed some people who you know a, a normal call the station wouldn't get those type of people i reached out did my research and also i have a website but just starting out you know within a year it's not a long process it's just something i did and i love doing yeah. so i can but so you're doing the right you're doing the right thing because um I tell people the best way to learn is to start your idea whatever it is if it's a business or a website and even if it fails you're going to learn a lot in just doing it you know um and the thing I guess that you're asking is you want to be learning from other people as well um who know more than you Yeah so Yeah um or you want to have a mentor of some sort um and so, you know, we there, there. I have all sorts of strategies in the book for how you find like the great perfect mentor. Like, like fifty, if he found the perfect mentor for himself in Jam Master Jay. Uh, that's maybe where you're at right now. I don't know. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm mid read right now in Mastery. I read Fiftieth Law. I read some of Forty Eight, but I read all Fiftieth. I loved it. But uh, Temple Grand, the, pro- the professor with autism, that's such an awesome story that you talked yeah. about. Here. I ran into that a little bit. And yeah. uh, I mean, he can do what she loves. I feel like anyone can because I had a hard time in school and I didn't really care for it. I know you're not big on the college education, even though you have a degree. But yeah. um, that whole story that's so inspiring and interesting. I I loved it. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, the, the idea was, you know, people like to talk about, um, you know, genius and talent. Like somebody is born that way, like a a Jay Z or whomever. They they just were born. Uh, with a gift, and that's all what it's all about. And it's just a lot of bullshit because, really, to get to that point, uh, you, it's really about how hard you work, um, and how much you're patient, and how you're, if you have tough skin and you can put up with criticism. It's more like an emotional thing, not a uh, intellectual or brain thing that's going to determine whether you're successful. So to kind of show my idea that it's not about what you're born. Um, I talk about Temple Grandin. She was born with autism, yes. which would essentially be the opposite of what we're talking about. And there's, there's no chance somebody with that severe a mental disability could ever become great or a master. It's just 
you can look it up how many people with autism ever get anywhere. Um, and at, at the age of three, she was they were going to basically put her in a hospital where she would be the rest of her life. And she managed to get out of, the, uh, of this through help of their, her mother, who got her a, a speech therapist, who managed to teach her to talk uh, at a late age. And so she was able to go to school. And even though she was really different from all the other students and, and didn't have social skills, she discovered that she loved animals and science. Um, and so through that, she became like a really good student um, and developed really solid skills as a, as a, you know, studying science in high school, got into college, and then essentially created a career um, working in animal management and designing uh, cattle yards and things like that. Um, and so she, now she's a internationally recognized expert on animals and on autism itself because she writes and lectures on it. Um, so if somebody like that with such a severe handicap yeah. can, can turn their life around, I, I don't want to hear excuses yeah. from other people that, you know, I didn't go to the right school or, or, or things like that. Make me feel grateful because I do have an anxiety disorder and uh, ADD, but I don't take any medication or anything like that. I'm old school with it. Oh, good but for you. Awesome to hear that approach. <clears throat> and going into my next question was about, like, how do you feel about people relying on medications when nervous or down? Does it affect the people in a negative way? Because I know um, in City of Fall you talk about fearlessness, but you don't want to be too fearless, you know? Well, I mean, it's it's a great question, and you know, it's, if if people have a a, a real um, a real disorder, uh, I know I hear that uh, medication can can really alter your life uh, for the good. Um, the can the, the problem is um, this is something be, that becomes like a a lifelong dependency and and holds you back. Um, I know Temple Grandin herself uh, uses medication. Uh, she has for many years, um, just simply to help deal w with her high levels of anxiety. Yes. Um, but she's still able to function very well um, as a scientist. So it's whether is it a, a crutch where you you know you basically are trying to to uh, forget all of your troubles and, and et cetera, or whether you're using it in a very conscious way to kind of help deal with things that you just can't deal with on your own. But the best solution in life is to do what you're doing and to try and uh, develop a way to handle anxiety uh, on your own. So you, it's something that comes from within you. It's a skill. You, maybe you practice meditation. Maybe you take up uh, martial arts. Anything that will help um, kind of calm you down because you have to be in the moment and focus. Um, is superior to any kind of medication because it's a skill that you're developing and you can use your whole life um, as opposed to being dependent on a drug. But I do understand people who, who really need it and, 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 it, and it can play a positive role to the medication. That's why, honestly, I read the 50th law because I, had, I was nervous and stuff, but it taught me about like how like the fear, you have to expose yourself. And like that's why I would read the book and actually do exposure therapy. Like, I would go on radio. Like it took me like three years to do radio. I was scared shitless. Wow. And it kept going through reading about 50 Cent and stuff, and it was inspiring through hip hop and, and the fear factor. That's a great story. I mean, the idea behind the 50th law, and just to explain it to, to, to listeners, is uh, you know, my, my, when we were doing the book together, my idea was to try and figure out what made 50 uh, so successful, considering where he came from. Um, and I determined after being around him for many months uh, that it was his lack, his fearlessness, not the fearlessness of, of being out on the streets and dealing with crime and all that. It's a fearlessness of an attitude where he's not afraid to take chances. He's not afraid to be on his own. He's not yeah. afraid of, of all the hard work that goes into being successful. That's what I meant. And so, but the thing that you have to realize about fear is everybody has it. It's a natural, normal animal response. Our brains are wired uh, <laughs> to have a kind of fight or flight response to certain situations, and fear has a uh, a function. If you weren't, if you didn't have fear, you you would walk right off a cliff, or you would go right up to a lion and be eaten. So, we, fear has a function, but 
it, 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 tends, to, it tends to dominate our lives. It tends to dominate all of our decisions. Yeah. It, it, it infects us in ways that you're not aware of. And the idea is you have to confront and be aware of your fears and not act like you, that you don't have them. Once you're aware that you're afraid of certain things, then you do what you just said. You, you literally can expose yourself to them to realize it's not as bad as you, as you thought it was. Um, this, this pertains to regular phobias. You know, I, I used to have a claustrophobia, um, couldn't get in a crowded elevator, airplanes were kind of not so great, and I just forced myself to go into those situations and realize my fears are just not real. They're, 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 they're way out of, of connect, contact with reality. So, you know, it's a, it's a process of being aware that fear is infecting your life right now and how you can confront it and overcome it. Yeah, and you, you talk about genetics too, um, how they don't matter with your profession. Meaning, someone's father and mother can have an awful job, or like you know, I mean, not not have done something worthwhile, but a kid could grow up to be a scientist, or a kid could grow up to be Fifty Cent. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much demonstrated science-wise now uh, that there's no correlation between genetics, your parents, their IQ, and and your possible success in life. There are examples of people who were born to to pro- college professors who were and then and they and their children end up being very brilliant but there are infinitely as many examples that can't be explained that way of uh, their great scientists in the 19th century etc who who were born to extreme poverty um, whose parents were common bricklayers and blacksmiths um, and and you know they became incredibly successful um, and I interviewed nine masters, contemporary masters for my new book. I also, you know, talk about a lot of historical ones, but I did interview nine contemporary, including Temple Grandin, and there was no correlation. You know, some of them came from good backgrounds, some of them came from terrible backgrounds. So there's no way to to connect genetics or heredity uh, with actual real success. I mean, you take someone like 50. Um, you know, never knew his father, so we don't know who his father was, but probably not up to much good, uh, especially how, what 50 t- uh, knows about him. And his mother was a hustler um, who was murdered when she was when he when he was eight years old. Um, so, you know, how do you account for where he ended up? He does say that you know his mother was a very ambitious aggressive woman and maybe he his energy comes from her that's that's possible but the intelligence that he has because he's a really smart guy there's no way you're going to find that genetically so really what it is um is something having to do with your level of desire and your clarity about what you want to do in life um choosing the right career and being emotionally connected to your work, that's what's going to make you successful, not, you know, your parents' IQ or what university you went to. Yeah. So how can everyone and anyone overcome the odds? Because you believe that. You believe in that with mastery. You said that, you know, anyone could do what they love and become a master, you know, bigger than the passion, become a master at it. And look at all the people who are unhappy, though, sitting in the cubicle all day, hating their job. I mean, you had those years, too, when you were in your 20s or 30s. But finally, you uh, found what you love to do. How does one really overcome the odds, though? Well, it depends on where you are in life. I mean, if you're 18 or 22, it's it's pretty open. You've got a lot of opportunity. Uh, if you do what we, when we talked about your life, and if you want to go and be a journalist dealing with hip-hop, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, you've got, you've got some, what I call like a framework in which you can, within which you can explore what you love and find out, um, you know, what it is exactly you should be doing. I loved writing since I was a kid, um, and I knew I wanted to write, so I explored. I tried journalism, Hollywood, television, novels, and then I finally discovered it through a book. But if you're older and you've got a really bad job, it's a little different. So what I tell people is, let's say you've got a really bad job um, and uh, you have a family to support, perhaps. Um, You don't want to quit. It's, everything has to be realistic. I don't write books that are not practical. Um, but what you want to do is you want to take some time to yourself 
instead of your free time being devoted to to playing video games or watching movies, etc., you've got to spend some time first first and foremost thinking about who you are and where you want to go in life. Um, eventually, in four or five years, I want to be making this change in, in, in career-wise and getting out of this job I have. But who who are you? What is it that you love? What is it that you hate? Once you determine that, then what you've got to do is um, figure out how you can, in, in two years' time, quit this job that you don't like um, and go segue into something that's more interesting. You're not going to suddenly quit a job at a fast food restaurant and get hired at you know um, you know a, a, as, a, as a journalist uh, at a, for a hip hop magazine. It's unrealistic. But in the in the time that in those two years, you're going to tell yourself, I'm going to learn some skills on my on my own. Um, mm-hmm. Instead of wasting my time, I'm going to take an online course. I'm going to go to night school. I'm going to develop some kind of skill, one or two skills, in my free time, with the plan that in two years I'm going to quit. Once you do that, once you decide what you want to do. Um, and you make the choice that you're going to learn some things that are going to help you go in that new direction, but everything changes. You mm-hmm. suddenly don't – you can put up with a bad job because you have a plan. It's not hopeless. You know you're heading in a direction. You know that in six years things will change for you. You're going to start your own business or whatever it is. Um, and with the Internet and the, uh, now, you can learn all kinds of amazing skills um, very cheaply and and – very quickly, uh, you could take business classes online, etc. Yeah. That's what you want to do, and you want to be realistic and take small steps in the right direction um, with kind of a plan in mind. And 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 follow and go, you know, get my book Mastery. It explains all about how you can take an apprentice, how you apprentice yourself, and develop the skills that you need, um, and how you can then, you know gradually work on that but it's never never hopeless yeah i got mastery on my ipad but the listeners definitely go out and get it and uh, i got a lot of college kids who listen a lot of hip-hop people who listen so it's good advice that you're giving for everyone within a certain Uh profession yeah um i mean i've i've seen uh, you know the book's been out like a year and a half now and i'm getting emails from people um who are telling me it's really, really uh, helped them. I mean, I can't say yet, if it's too early, that it, they've suddenly uh, uh, changed. You know, it, it, mastery takes can take 10 years uh, yeah. or, or the famous 10,000 hours. But they, but I get lots of emails from people saying it really, really helped clarify the direction they were taking in life and the choices that they're making. Yeah, it, yeah. You talked a lot about it in the 50th ball a little bit, like you were going into the mastery, like you, you, you know what I mean. You calculate it and you plan that mastery was going to be the next book after 50th ball. Um, yeah, that come into play, like spending months with 50 Cent when right and and writing for him, and the book. Like how was that? How was that? The experience hanging out with him. I heard the steakhouse story. I thought that was really funny. And I'd be nervous. Um, yeah, basically, I met 50 uh, first time uh, in New York in the back room of a steakhouse and you know I, I was a little bit intimidated because I didn't know what to expect you know he seems yeah. like he could be a very threatening guy he's got that thug kind of uh, aura and he and he was there with his kind of entourage his son was there and his son's pretty impressive back then he was maybe 10 years old and he had all this bling and I, I thought he, he seemed like a prince to me. He was just so had this royal air about him, and he was there with all his his his, his entourage, and I was by myself, so I, I I felt like a little intimidated. But he's a really really nice person, uh, very down to earth, very little ego, uh, which is sort of surprising. Um, and he like actually was listening to me and talking to me about w- war and strategy because he's really into strategy. And so hanging out with him was just a, was a great, great experience. You know, I mean, I had things that I'll never forget. You know, I'm hanging out at his house, you know, the one that Mike Tyson built, which is a very weird, interesting place with all his friends and going to Vegas, um, traveling to Vegas, because that's where he was going a lot at that time, um, and have it going to some very weird parties, um, you, you know, Floyd Mayweather Jr.'s mother's birthday party out in the desert near Vegas. Oh man, was that that was something I'll never forget. 
And just watching him as a business person, he'd go into meetings, uh, high-powered meetings, uh, and he was he had a real way of kind of commanding a room that really impressed me. I also saw uh, like there was a crisis um, where uh, he was going to release uh, a song from his new um, album back then um, on the on the radio. Uh, and it got released on the internet first, and and everyone was freaking out. And he just turned this around. I have a chapter in there about turning shit into sugar. He he did that right before my eyes. I was very impressed with him as a as a business person and just as a, a human being. Even my mother was seduced by him, and she she she's the most unhip hop person you can imagine. That's funny. He actually has a new album coming out this summer titled Animal Ambition, and his music is kind of usually, because, uh, you know, he was kind of in a rut a little bit. Like, he couldn't rap about the same stuff he was rapping yeah. about on Get I Try. And, but his music has been sounding better lately, and uh, he's performing at Summer Jam in New York City, so I'm excited to hear him perform. Um, yeah, that, that's great. They, you know, and um, I, I mean, the thing about 50 is it's weird because he would be doing all kinds of, of mixtapes just the things that he would improvise and he would play them for me in his car and they were unbelievably good and then you would get to the record and none of that would show up on the record they would do all these heavily produced songs that just didn't feel like him anymore um and so maybe he's going back a little bit back to his roots yeah kind of, uh, which would be a good thing how do you feel about his current situation where he has some issues with his old rap crew, uh, G-Unit, Lloyd Banks, Tony Ayo. They don't speak anymore, and it, it's gotten weird lately and awkward. They don't even communicate or talk or make music anymore. Well, he was already having problems with Banks back, way back uh, when Shanko. I was there. That was already happening. Uh, I think it was fairly public, so that doesn't surprise me. Tony Ayo, that, that's a little more surprising because they were pretty close, but, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a character, and and people have egos, um, and you know, I I was there when I was there. It was all the whole game uh, issue was going on, um, yeah. and a lot of people, you know, there's the law number one about never outshining the master. Well, Fifty's the master, and yeah, and, you know, he has an he has an ego just like I do, and anybody does. Uh, so he likes to. To you know, maybe be the king of the crew, and some people that works well with, and some don't. But I could say a lot of people use him, um, and so it's not it's not all just him being being kind of like a king. A lot of people um, they, they they use his him, and they don't do the work. And he, yeah. That was a major complaint that they would um, they, he would sign a deal with them, and then they would expect him to come in and, and just do all the heavy lifting and put his name on it, and then it would sell. And so, you know, a, a lot of it, I think, uh, is a mutual thing where he resents people who don't work as hard as he does, and other people resent the fact that they think he's he's kind of keeping them in a in a lower place. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know what how he's how he's gonna. Maybe he needs to find like a a new group of artists for the GU. Yeah. I, it, it seems they didn't pull their weight and issues like that. And also Lloyd Banks, as you said, didn't want to be like the ball, the uh, 50, 50 Cent. He didn't want 50 Cent's shadow behind him or anything like that. He wanted to do his own thing. But those guys got lazy here and there. That's what 50 was saying. He recently yeah, also, yeah, I'm sorry. Go on. Oh, I was just going to say, he also recently did a song with Fat Joe, someone who he didn't like at one point and was trying to crush because of uh, one of the laws, you know, crushed the competition and everything like yeah. that. They're, they look, They seem to be peaceful and they make music together. Yeah, he's done that before. I can't remember who he did that with before. Um, uh, it doesn't come to mind. I mean, he, he obviously hasn't and won't do a, a record with Ja Rule. That makes sense. But uh, Fat yeah. Joe, you know, that, and he's following one of the laws of power, uh, which I know he knows about, which is about learning to use your enemies, being, being a, worried and afraid of your friends because they're the ones that are probably going to turn on you, which is what has happened to him a lot. So it's a very powerful strategy to like suddenly turn around and, and decide to work with someone that nobody would expect. And the thing is, he's very strategic. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of these beefs um, are kind of chosen 
uh, for a good reason, but like to sell records with someone who he knows he can he can kind of toy with, and just as easy and just as much deciding to now work with someone uh, who was his former enemy. That's all. It's all strategy. Yeah. Um, play a sucker to catch a sucker. One of Fifty Cent's favorite laws from the Forty Eight. Um, how do you fall so popular within the music industry and hip hop culture? Well, you know, um, the reason uh, he, he likes that law, and a lot of the other artists do, is um, you know when you when you go into a meeting, um, when you're dealing with people in the record industry, they assume that you're stupid. Uh, mm-hmm. Particularly as an African American artist, they think that all that you want is the bling, the you know the the fun, the the cars, etc. So they're going to screw you with a contract in which they'll give you some upfront money, but they're going to own all your music. That was back in the day. It's changed a little bit now. Yeah. Um, so they they start with the assumption that you're naive, don't know the business, and they can screw you. And so a lot of these artists, and 50 loved it, is just kind of playing that role a little bit, acting kind of stupid, um, see, and, and then letting getting them to sort of commit and show that they were planning to sort of uh, use him and now turn the tables on them, you know. So uh, he would go into a meeting in which people would expect him to be threatening and emotional and and not very bright, and he would just sort of play like kind of dumb and and, and get them to, to do something, and then now he has like a way to turn the tables on him. He, I know many cases where he did that on small levels and, and, and on big levels, many many of his movies. It's probably one of his favorite laws. Yeah. How many of your own laws have you broken? Like, do you go around all day and, like, think to myself, oh, I'm breaking this law, i got to remember this strategy, or do you just, like, live your life? Like, it's kind of hard to remember or to, like, know when to use this law or when to not, you know what I mean? Like, I make notes in all your books and, like, highlight certain things yeah. because it's forget stuff but the stories that you bring back into history and stuff it helped me remember that like temple grand or like einstein whoever you talk about you know but do you ever well, break your own? Um, yeah i mean i tell people like they say do do i could anyone practice all 48 laws i said no that would you'd be like a monster no one would want to be around you you yeah. wouldn't be a very nice person uh-huh. uh certain laws are going to be fit you who you are fit your circumstances mm-hmm. Sometimes it's great to court attention at all costs, but for other people, where you are in life, it's, it would be just a disaster to do that. So, you know, of all the laws, there's probably half, over half that I've actually encountered and been aware of and maybe used in my life, maybe a little bit more. Um, you know, I've never crushed my enemy totally because I don't think I really have enemies, at least yeah. as far as you know. Um, but, um, you know... Other laws, uh, I'm 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 very much aware of uh, laws like appear, like formlessness is something I use a lot, or create compelling spectacles, or interaction with boldness, or recreate yourself. You know, I never try and stay the same, or have my books just be imitations of the 48 laws. Each book is is something new and different. Yeah. But you know, I've also I've also violated some of the laws because I'm a human being and I'm not perfect. So uh, law number one: never outshine the master. Before I wrote the book, I, I had two very big examples of that happening to me, where I outshone them and I I suffered the consequences. So uh, there's there's some of the laws I've I have violated in my past that I've learned the hard way. It's funny because you write all these cold books, but you seem to be a warm-hearted gentleman. Like you know, what I mean, like you talked about how you actually. You, you're very emotional deep down, and uh, you got walked over like in Hollywood and in life, just like most people have. So it's like you kind of root for the underdog, and you use these laws yeah. to to like take over the people who are the cold assholes, you know. So that's why I was reading it and like researching and found it to be so cool because it's helpful for people who are like warm-hearted and like nice people because like you know what I mean. Sometimes they finish last. Yeah, that sort of was the justification for the book because I'm I'm personally I'm like that. I mean I. You know, I, I entered the work world kind of a naive person who thought people would be everything would be great, and if you worked on a magazine or something, is everybody was interested in creating a great thing, and it was all about the work. And it was just not the reality. The reality is there's ego politics and yeah. and, and and ugly people out there. Let's just be honest about it. 
And what irritated me the most was it working in Hollywood where it was pretty overt that everyone was really after power and there's just so much egos. Uh, but no one wanted to talk about it. It was like, oh, it's just about creating a movie and culture and art and so which was just a lot of bullshit. So I want half the reason I wrote the 48 Laws was to say this. Look, this is what really happens. No one's writing books about this. No one's talking about it. But when you close the door behind the the, the vice president or president of a company, this is what he or she is actually doing. Um, and from the point of view of someone like myself, who was a bit naive, um, you need to know about it. You need to have your eyes open. For instance, there's a pretty nasty law in the book about get others to do the work but always take the credit. Uh, yeah. And that happened to me you know, numerous times in Hollywood where I do all the work and they'd put their name on it. And I, you know, I wanted to show people that this is what happens and you, you need to be aware. There are some people out there who, who are kind of sharks already who read the book, and, and I know about that. But most of the emails I get from people are like, you or me, uh, those types who really um, don't understand the power game naturally and need a book to kind of open their eyes. Yeah, because, like, if you were natural at it, you wouldn't need, really need the book or you would look back on it. But, like, for me yeah. and you, that's why I would research and look look for these things, you know, try to make it. That's why the underdogs, Kanye West, Jay-Z, Nas, 50 Cent at one time were reading this book because they knew the industry was shady. Yeah. And, and and although, you know, you'd think of 50 or, or Jay-Z or Kanye as kind of tough, street-smart, yeah. aggressive guys, in fact, um, they're not really prepared for the stuff that can go on um, in, the, in the music industry um, where, the, where people are very aggressive, but they, they hide it, you know, because all that, that 50 knew was people who, who don't hide their aggressiveness. And yeah. you can almost see it coming, and you take a response. But how do you handle people that pretend to smile and love you and think you're great, and then at the same time screw you? I mean, look what happened to him. He he has his first um, record deal with Columbia uh, at a fairly early age. Um, he cuts, a, I think, maybe his best album, one of his best albums, Power of the Dollar, which nobody has ever heard because it never... And, and then he gets... Um, he gets shot uh, when he's like still doing a little bit of dealing, and the record company just drops him. Yeah, uh, the one that gets shot, but they drop him. But that's not the worst thing. What the worst thing is that everybody else blackballed him. Nobody would go near him. It was like the ind everybody in the industry decided together we don't want to go any have anything to do with Fifty. Um, so he saw very clearly how nasty. And, and how they control everything. And you're in a situation where they have a hold all the cards, they control it. Um, how do you turn that situation around? So, you know, I, I think the book helped him a lot. It's also funny, thinking about it, like laughing, uh, how you're a you know, white middle-class author, middle-aged, and like this whole African-American audience loves your work and body of work, and like lives by it. And I'm, a, I'm this radio personality journalist, this goofy white middle-aged person, in my twenties, and I uh -huh. love the culture that you that you write about, and I love the culture, and I, you know what I mean. It's just so funny how everything works out, and how people are so unique in, in different ways. Yeah, um, I mean, I must say, I always really identified with uh, black culture growing up, uh, um, with music, particularly jazz, and um, and then sports-wise, because I'm a huge basketball junkie. Yeah. Uh, but also the literature and the writers. I just, for some reason, identified with it. So even though I wrote The 48 Laws of Power, not ever in my wildest imagination uh, thinking that, that I would have a hip-hop audience for it, when it did happen, um, I was like, well, this is great because yeah. maybe there is something, a way, a, a spirit that we share or, or some common interest there. So I'm, I'm much more excited about that than hearing about people on Wall Street reading the book. Yeah. I quoted that. I said, "I said you also said you enjoyed the hip hop culture better than the Wall Street people." I was going to talk about that, but well, I, we talked about a lot. I just before we go, I got some few questions. You know, I don't want to keep you all night. Um, 
what are the top three pieces of advice that are most important in all of your books for someone to follow and use as daily motivation? Not knocking the credibility of all your brilliant research, but what are the top three best things that people could get out of the book by you saying well, it right now? Uh, you know, it's hard to – I don't know if there's three. I'd say the first thing would be um, I, I'm, I'm wanting to change – all of my books are trying to change your attitude from the inside out. So it's it's not so much what exactly you do. It's it's your own attitude and how you think that is really important. And I want you to adopt this kind of attitude that's almost like what I call a warrior's pose mm-hmm. uh, in life where – you don't take things personally. Um, okay. It's not you, – you try and – you can't help getting emotional about things that happen, so that I don't – you know, there's nothing you can do about that. But I want you to be able to not take things so personally and quite so emotionally. So when people do something bad or say something that you think is malicious, you realize, well, it's really not about me that they're doing that. It's about something in their past. And I just happen to be in the crossing their path at the wrong time. It's not about me. It's about their 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 problems or their pettiness. And if you can kind of distance yourself from the things that happen to you in life and and look at it like it's a, a little bit like a chess, excuse me a chess game or a, or, a, or a boxing match. If somebody does a great move um, in chess or in boxing, you don't like suddenly hate them as a person they just are outdoing you they're outwitting you in life so you need to get better at it i want people to like not be getting so emotional and personal about things in life because what it does is it it ruins it it drains your energy it makes you take decision make decisions that are very irrational uh you're not thinking about your long-term interests um and it, it makes you lose a sense of what's really important in life so most important, the most critical thing in my books is being able to look at yourself and events with some distance and controlling all of that emotional response. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is is probably the most important thing. The other thing is, I'll just give two because otherwise three is too much, um, mm-hmm. is the game in life is not to be liked or to love, to be loved. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of people go wrong. They they go to the workplace, whatever, and they go, God, I just want everybody to like me, and I'm going to try really hard uh, to do that. Um, and that's not what life is about or work is about. What you want is that people need you. They're dependent on you. They can't get rid of you. You're the only person in the world who could write that book or start that website. Um, and therefore, to fire you is just not possible because it's too painful there's, there's, you know, you're, you're the only one. Um, that's what you want to. That's your goal in life is to make it so people need you. Not, they don't love you because if they love you, tomorrow they may not love you anymore because love you can't control that. And without even knowing why, suddenly they don't like you anymore. And where are you then? But if they need you, everybody is very pragmatic and thinks of their self-interest. They're not going to. Yeah rid of you because it's too it's too painful and it's the same in the whole game of life if you have a skill that's unique uh that's that's just you know based on all of your experience you're going to write your own ticket in the world because there's always a need for somebody who's different and skilled so those would be the two things that i would say Mm. Good advice. I definitely broke some of the advice you gave, like being emotional and whatnot would get rejected for internships or job opportunities and things like that. And also, I've wanted people to like me or love me before. I'm sure everyone has who's listening and uh, needs to learn, but they do take some time. And they are definitely, it's definitely amazing advice. Okay, that's good to hear. So what is uh, next for Robert Greene? I know you're in the process of writing a book. And, yeah, uh, well, basically, I'm taking a chapter in mastery and expanding it into a book. And the chapter uh, was on social intelligence. And I, I was trying to tell the reader, it's not just being brilliant at what you do and being technically competent and being an expert. You also have to know how to work with people. Yeah. Um, and because you you could be the greatest software writer in the world, but if people don't like being around you, um, you're never going to find the funding for your business. So you need to have social skills. 
And I talked in the book about the two parts of that skill, which are being alive in the moment and reading people and being very sensitive to the signals they send, and then having a very solid knowledge of human behavior and human nature. Um, that's I'm going to write an entire book on that. It's provisionally called The Laws of Human Nature. And mm. I'm going to give, give you, you the keys to really understanding uh, the behavior of people around you. Because, you know, often we don't understand why somebody reacted the way they did. Why aren't they returning my phone calls? Why are they suddenly acting like my enemy? Why are they not cooperating? What's going on? You always, day in and day out, you're thinking, I really don't know what's going on in that person's head, and it drives, it can drive you crazy. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to be able to solve that for you because people are mysterious, but I'm going to help make it easier for you to, to have a better sense of what might be happening in their head and how to decode their behavior and act on a, a more rational level in dealing with people. So that's sort of my new book. It seems like a good concept, and I'll obviously buy it because I have most of your books. i got to get the uh, war one. I don't have that one, though. Uh-huh. Well, that's a that's a very important book for anybody in business um, because, and I, and I mean any kind of business, even if you're an artist, um, yeah. because it's a book of, about pure strategy. Um, and, you know, it's sort of my version of the art of war, but at a very practical level and yeah. how you could become a, a superior strategist in life. You could literally use the art of seduction to get women. Well... Or women can use it to get men, because I made the book, you know, go both ways. That, um, yeah, um, but it's not a book for pickup artists. In other words, it's not. It, you can use it that way, but it's not really designed for. It's not designed for yeah. one night stands. It's designed for making someone really fall in love with you, or kind of cast a spell. Um, and you know, it can be used to 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 you know, pick up women for sure. But really, I'm I'm talking about seduction on the level of also marketing and politics yeah. and seducing the people that you work with so that, you know, and all these other aspects. Um, so it's more the psychology of seduction. You you could tell you're like a really good history buff because you're so passionate about the stories. Like in every chapter, there's examples. And that's yeah. like a, using people as examples. And that like gets my mind thinking like, if he could do it, I could do it. If Temple Grand, if she could do it, then I could do it, you know? It's just great. I love that's what I love about it the most. Yeah, well thank you. That's sort of um that's sort of my goal, you know, and, and why I like using these historical examples because uh otherwise everything all the ideas I talk about are just too abstract and you're wondering how can I possibly do that in my life? Well I'm showing you exactly how other people have done it. And also yeah. it's more fun to read a story than to, to have someone lecture to you. Yeah, so much. Um, I definitely want to keep in touch. I'll send you an email about, like, everything going on, and you know what I mean? Maybe you could give me some good advice, like personal advice, about, like, the um, not the um, internship, apprenticeships, and everything in the hip-hop culture and whatnot. Sure. Sure. And well, you have, you have my email. Yeah, this is Robert Green, and you're tuned to Keep It Basement uh, with Kevin Sweeney. Mike Sweeney, but that was still cool. Oh, man, man, let me do it again. You, again. Can, you can erase that. Wow, yeah. how did I get that wrong? <laughs> this is Robert Green, and you are turn, tuned to Keep It Basement uh, with Mike Sweeney. Okay, take care. <laughs>